1: The federal law known as Title VII prohibits employers from discriminating against anyone because of sex. But does that prohibition include discrimination based upon sexual orientation? So far, the federal courts have said no but the EEOC disagrees and has been harshly critical of the way the courts have addressed the question. Now the full Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago has heard arguments about whether it should become the first federal court to agree with the EEOC and to hold that discrimination against gay people is covered by federal employment law. With us to talk about the case today are Anthony Kreiss, a professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, and Michael Selmy, a professor at George Washington University Law School. Michael, the... Seventh Circuit is hearing this case on banc after a, an adjunct professor at a community college sued because she claimed she didn't get full-time employment because she is gay. The, lo- the first panel of the Seventh Circuit that's now being reviewed, the three-judge panel, said that she didn't have a claim under Title VII, but they didn't seem entirely happy about the decision when you read it. What is it that the Seventh Circuit panel said that the full court is now reviewing?
2: Well, this is an issue that has been um, uh, lurking in the courts for quite some time, actually going back to the 1970s, but it has picked up steam um, with the EOC decision in 2015. So with the low, with the initial uh, decision from the Seventh Circuit did, and you're right, it was quite unusual, it was a long decision uh, discussing all of the previous cases and suggesting that although the they were bound by their prior precedent, which had held that Title VII does not prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. The judge writing the opinion also concluded that the law was quite unsatisfactory currently and had created a framework that was hard to justify. And so she suggest, or hinted at that, I think it's a better word, in terms, in the opinion, that it was time for the court to reconsider their prior decisions, and uh, that could only be done by the on bank court.
0: Tony, several of the judges focused on some Supreme Court cases, and Judge David Hamilton focused on a landmark Supreme Court decision establishing that gender stereotyping is actionable as sex discrimination, and he said, I have a hard time drawing a principal distinction between between discrimination against someone for looking gay and being gay, is that a good argument?
3: I, I think that's a great argument. Um, you know, the, the court, the the entire court, when when discussing this particular point in that that case, being Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, um, thought that it was really irreconcilable to have a uh, employment protections for people who are you know falsely imputed the wrong sexual orientation, but those who are uh, actually discriminated against on the basis of sexual orientation are left out in the cold. Um, you know, it really it, it speaks to the idea. I think that when we when we look to statutes statutes and trying to divine what they mean, um, we can't just look to what Congress actually intended. We, in terms of the the principal evil, but we have to look at as Justice Scalia had said in a earlier case, reasonably related evils. Um, and and so, you know, it, just as much as it doesn't make sense to allow someone um, to to get away with sexual uh, harassment in the workplace, um, you know, on the basis of gender stereotyping, we shouldn't allow people to use those same type of stereotypes to actually discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation.
1: Michael, the, the court in the lower, the first decision, the, the three judge panel also referred to um, Obergefell and the gay marriage decisions and how well that what doesn't directly bear on statutory interpretation, it raises some interesting questions. What What was the court saying there?
2: Well, that, um, that was also relevant to uh, uh, the court's decision to take a new look at their uh, past precedent, because as uh, Judge Posner, who's uh, probably the most influential Court of Appeals judge and certainly the most influential on the Seventh Circuit, suggests that the law uh, is evolving. And uh, it may be time for the court, to without congressional action, to acknowledge that uh, the law is changing to incorporate uh, protections against sexual orientation. Uh, and what they mentioned, in, and it, it took up a, a significant part of the argument back and forth in terms of the, um, the evolution and the marriage issues, that uh, these days, you know, someone could get married, and this has been an argument made by a lot of the groups pushing um, to change the law. Someone could get married on the weekend and could be fired on uh, Monday because of their sexual orientation, um, and that that uh, doesn't make much sense, especially when you take into account the uh, way the law has unfolded, as was just described. That. Uh, what the court currently does is it does prohibit discrimination uh, based on what's called gender nonconforming. So if someone is not conforming to gender stereotypes or to the notion of what a man or a woman should be like, they can find protection um, so long as the discrimination is not based on purely on their sexual orientation. And that's too where the court was having a hard time justifying that both in terms of the evolutional law with respect to marriage and also in terms of a practical justification for why we would ever Create a law like that,
0: Tony. Tell me about the EEOC's position on this and whether any courts have followed it.
3: Yeah. So, so in July of 2015, um, the EEOC uh, had a was faced with this issue of whether uh, Title VII sex-based uh, or anti-discrimination protections uh, for sex discrimination included sexual orientation discrimination, and they ruled uh, three to two. That, that Title VII uh, did in fact protect sexual orientation. Now, of course, uh, the the EOC's ruling here is very persuasive, and generally speaking, the courts will give uh, deference to that. Um, and so ultimately, it will be up to the courts to, to decide whether the EOC's interpretation is correct. Um, but there have been a number of, of cases percolating. Uh, I, I think, f- first off, the Seventh Circuit is very likely to to uh, rule, um, overrule their precedent and rule alongside with the EOC on this issue. Uh, that recently, uh, in November, early in November, um, there was a District federal district court in Pennsylvania which also held that Title VII sex-based discrimination uh, protections uh, included sexual orientation uh, or included discrimination against, or protections against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And we have a number of other circuit courts will, which will hear uh, issue, here are these types of cases, the 11th Circuit and the Second Circuit. Um, and, and I think that given the trajectory of the law as a whole, um, given some of these gender stereotyping uh, cases, given the evolution of uh, Title VII, expanding Title VII to protect against same-sex sexual harassment, uh, you know, noting Obergefell, uh, Lawrence versus Texas, some of these other decisions uh, which, which recognize that, that, you know, the federal constitution uh, protects against sexual orientation discrimination I think given all these things as a whole, it's very likely that the courts will side with the EEOC and and adopt their reasoning.
1: We are talking about a lawsuit in federal court in Chicago that's now been heard by the full Seventh Circuit about whether or not Title VII the federal anti- anti-employment discrimination statute covers sexual discrimination as a covered category and thereby protects people from being fired because of their sexual orientation. We're talking about the case, which was just argued in the full Seventh Circuit last week with uh, Anthony Kreis of the Chicago-Kent College of Law and Michael Selmy of George Washington University Law School. Michael, over the years, this is not a brand new issue as we've discussed. The, over the years, there have been attempts to get Congress to change the legislation, amend Title Seven, so that sexual orientation is clearly covered by the statute, and Congress has consistently refused to do so. How should the courts treat that fact in interpreting this lawsuit?
2: Well, that is one of the stronger arguments that the defendants the community college raised in this issue, um, namely that it should be left to Congress to determine whether the scope of the statute includes sexual orientation. And it is the case that I think it's going on 20 years now that uh, efforts to expand the statute to clearly include sexual orientation have not um, uh, progressed. It's not that they have been defeated. It's that they generally have just sat in committee. Um, So for whatever reason, Congress has not been willing to address the issue. Um, The Seventh Circuit did not seem persuaded by that, at least in the argument. And one of the things is that Congress can always uh, change the law, if it turns out that the Seventh Circuit interprets it inconsistent with uh, Congress's intent. So if this court were to hold that uh, the law did include sexual orientation, uh, Congress could reverse that uh, statutorily just as they could uh, expand the statute on their own. So it didn't seem that... um, Uh, The court was persuaded by that, and the court also felt that the law was clearly moving in the direction of incorporating sexual orientation, um, particularly in light of some of the Supreme Court cases with respect to same-sex marriage uh, and the like, and so they also thought that they were taking uh, initiative from the Supreme Court in considering whether the statute should be considered judicially to include sexual orientation.
0: Tony, uh, Judge Posner said, you seem to think the meaning of the statute was frozen on the day it passed. That, of course, is false. Are we bound by what people thought in 1964? And another judge brought up the case of Loving, which is a famous case, movie out about it. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah. So so for I, I think, first off, um, it's really hard to, to figure out what exactly Congress meant um, and intended in 1964 when they prohibited uh, sex-based discrimination in employment. And part of the reason for that is because the sex-based discrimination component of Title VII um, has a really interesting uh, history. So it was thrown in uh, kind of at the last minute by a representative from Virginia named Howard Smith. He was a chair of the Rules Committee, staunch uh, opponent of civil rights across the board. And sex-based discrimination um, was thrown thrown in the mix uh, in an attempt to sink the entire enterprise of the Civil Rights Act. So, you know, effectively, uh, you know, he, he thought that that you know, racial equality would, uh, would 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 take a hit if if women um, and women's rights were uh, thrown in the same lot. You know that that didn't come to pass, and, and Title VII uh, made it into law with both race discrimination protections and sex-based discrimination protections, among others. Um, and so that that's that's a tricky aspect of trying to divine what exactly Congress intended in 1964. But as a a general matter, you know, we don't necessarily adhere ourselves to what uh, legislators uh, intended um, when they wrote the statute. So, for example, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act, and Judge Posner pointed this out, uh, was was enacted in 1890. But we use modern economic theories in in its application uh, that weren't weren't available to legislators in 1890, and they could have had no way of figuring out. Um, in, in 1955, the Interstate Commerce Commission uh, interpreted the Interstate Commerce Act to require full integration on railroads, and that had not been the case for many years. And, and I don't think most folks would say, "Oh, the Interstate Commerce Act in, in the late 1800s was written to to advance civil rights." And this is the case in you know uh, other employment discrimination cases. Um, you know, we really we've done more with with laws than what uh, Congress may have initially intended. Well, course. Michael,
1: I think we're going to have to leave it there. Our thanks to uh, Tony. Tony Kreiss from Chicago-Kent College of Law and Michael Selmy of the George Washington University Law School. Thank you for being here on Bloomberg Law. Coming up on Bloomberg Law, we'll be talking about arguments in the Supreme Court about whether the states of North Carolina and Virginia engaged in racial gerrymandering when they drew their legislative districts. This is Bloomberg.